Welcome to the Victory Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. At Victory, we value love in action through growing, connecting, serving, and giving. We work to show God's love and share His truth as we love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ together. Here's this week's sermon by Pastor Terry Green. I am delighted to see you here and really happy to be able to be here. It's a blessing to be in church, as Jeff was sharing earlier, when I had to miss church for a while. It was so good to be able to get back, and uh, uh, a huge blessing for us. And it's fun to have uh, on a mall, have a bunch of family here, and not just the kids, you know, John, Ben, Jerry, and Kimmy, but uh, the rest of the family, too, her, her folks and sister, and such a huge blessing, and Now, quite often, people don't take the time to study the Bible and read what it really teaches. And the Bible includes a lot of history and narrative, and that can sometimes be misunderstood. And one of the ways people misread Scripture is taking something that is merely descriptive and treating it as if it were a command from God. And uh, to, to descriptive just means something described in the text. But the Bible says what they did. That's, it describes it. And then prescriptive means it's something that God wants us to do or not to do. And so unfortunately, sometimes people take a small part of the Bible and they try and make this big teaching out of that instead of accurately interpreting that. And so I talked with some of the folks in the church on our leadership team and asked them if they had some illustrations of this. And, and uh, Kathy gave me one. And in the, in the book of Esther, uh, Queen Vashti is summoned before the king, Ahasuerus, and she doesn't come. And so then uh, Ahasuerus is really upset because he's the king and his wife's supposed to obey. And so he talks with his leaders and they say, if we let this go, it'll spread all over the kingdom and wives will stop obeying their husbands. So King Ahasuerus makes this decree and he says, you wives must obey your husbands in everything. And so if we say, is that the standard for all the Bible? Yeah, it kind of works for me. No, no, it is not. All right, listen to what the Bible says. Here's how guys, listen especially, he, here's how guys, God wants guys to treat their wives, okay? Um, he wants you to love and cherish her as Christ loved the church, Ephesians 5.25. He wants you to honor and provide for her, 1 Peter 3.7. He, he wants you to have mutual submission with her, Ephesians 5.21. Husbands should lead in the home as Christ leads in the church, Does Christ lead in the church by browbeating and badgering and harassing and domineering? No. He doesn't lord over the church. He is lord over the church, but he doesn't lord it over the church. And so husbands are not to be lording it over their wives. They're supposed to be providing and blessing, encouraging and strengthening. So if you take that one little teaching from the beginning of Esther and you say, oh, this is how it ought to be, you're really going to have a mess. And if you're married to a good, strong woman, guy, you're going to be in trouble when that goes to go down because that's wrong. It's clearly not what the Bible teaches. So you can't take Esther chapter one and say, this is God's plan for marriage. No, you have to look at other passages. 
So when you're looking at, is it descriptive or prescriptive, sometimes you say, well, how can you tell? Well, this morning, we're going to look at several questions that you can ask. We're going to look at several passages of Scripture, some of which will be on the screen, some of which I'd like you to turn to. And so eventually, we're going to be in Leviticus chapter 1, where I'm not there yet, but you could turn there and be ready for when we get there. And then some of the scriptures we're going to look at are easy to understand and and clear. But here's some questions you need to ask to say, is this descriptive or prescriptive? But before I do that, do you understand the difference? The word prescriptive is like a prescription the doctor gives you. And when the doctor gives you a prescription, what does he want you to do? Follow it. Take it. And if it says, take this twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening, and you think, you know, I want to get it all over with in one day, just chug the whole bottle, that's deadly. Even medicine that's good for you can kill you if you take it in the wrong dosage. And so that's prescriptive. This is what you must do. Follow these instructions. Obey these rules. Then there's some that are descriptive. This is what they did there, but it's not God saying, you see what they did there? I want you to do it that way for all time. No. God does not want husbands to treat their wives the way Ahasuerus treated Vashti. He does not. Right? And there's some other things. So the difference between prescriptive and descriptive. Is it just my hearing aids or are you hearing something too? So, okay. All right. If you lay it on the floor and stomp on it, it'll stop. But no, you don't have to do that. But it, I, I just wanted to make, because if my hearing aids were doing that, I was going to take them out. So, all right. Uh, here's the first, do I, the first question. Do I understand the genre of this text? You say, what? It's the Bible, right? It's all the same genre. It's not. The Bible is written, this is a chart from Answers in Genesis, and they broke it out. by genre. So you got the books of the law, and then you got the books of history, and then you got the wisdom literature or the poetry, Job through Song of Solomon, and then uh, they go into the, the major prophets and then the minor prophets. And the difference between the major prophets and the minor prophets is really simple. The major one wrote longer books. So they were major prophets, and then the minor prophets wrote shorter books, some of them even of one page. Uh, But uh, then you go into the New Testament, and that starts with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the book of Acts, which is the transition between the Old Testament economy, the New Testament economy, between the Gospels and the letters of instruction to the churches. And, And there's a lot of things that take place in the book of Acts that are not things that we're commanded to do in the church. They were just, that's what happened, and then we learn from that. And then you get into the uh, epistles, the, the, what they call Pauline, the letters written by Paul, and then the general epistles, the letters written by other guys, all the way through the book of Revelation. And, and they, they love Revelation, and with that, some set Revelation aside as apocalyptic scripture, and, and they make that its own category. But the genre of Scripture matters. And here's one of the ways it matters. Okay, Um, Proverbs chapter 22, look on the screen. Proverbs 22, 6 uh, says, 
Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Okay? Now, that is found in the poetry or the wisdom literature, specifically found in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs are generally wise observations about life. You can learn a lot of practical wisdom from the Proverbs. But this verse is not a promise that if you raise your kids right, they will follow God their whole life. And it's not a promise that if your teenage kid strays away from God, then when they get a little older, they'll come back to God. It's not that promise. It is a wise saying that is generally true. So we would understand that verse differently if it showed up in the books of Moses, in the Pentateuch, or the books of the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Or if it showed up in the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus, then we would understand that verse differently because it would show up in a different place in Scripture. So based on where it is and how it's said in Scripture, we understand what it means. So it's basically teaching that as a general rule, if you try and raise your kids to follow God, as a general rule, they'll follow God when they're older. My parents raised me to follow God. I'm following God now. That's a general rule. But it's not an ironclad promise. Earlier this month, I met with several pastors for prayer time. Actually, there was 18 of us, I think. And we met at a church uh, up in somewhere in the valley. I think it was Gilbert. They all run together once you get up there. And uh, so we met at this church and we shared prayer concerns. And a couple of the pastors have an adult son who has turned away from God and rejected all the things of God. And it's a heartache for the pastors. But uh, some of you have experienced that. You have kids or grandkids that have turned away from the things of God. So it's not a promise that it'll all work out great. Nor is it an accusation. If your kids don't follow God, it's because you didn't learn them right. No, it's not that you didn't train them right. See, Adam and Eve did not get blamed by God for when Cain murdered Abel. And Samuel did not get blamed by God when his sons rebelled. Although Eli, who was the priest before Samuel, he got blamed because he was aiding and abetting his sons in their sin. And so you are responsible to try and guide your kids to follow the Lord. And if you do, as a general rule, your kids will learn to follow the Lord and they will serve him as a general rule. It doesn't mean it's always going to happen. And I mean, if having obedient kids was the only sign of spiritual parenthood, God's a lousy heavenly father. Look how some of his kids live. That's not the only standard. So you need to understand the genre of the text. And so there's different Bible study tools that can help you learn that and see that. But, but it makes a difference. So next time you're reading the book of Proverbs, learn from it. You can even say, this is what I'm going to do in my life based on this verse in Proverbs. But you can't say, this is what God wants everybody on the planet to do based on that verse in Proverbs. Does that make sense? Do you get that distinction? All right, second question. Is it repeated? Or is there another passage of Scripture that also helps you understand this subject? Is it repeated? Does it show up multiple times? 
Or is there another passage that's related to it? It doesn't repeat it exactly. Here's an example. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. That was a command that God gave to Israel in the Ten Commandments. Don't murder. It also shows up again in the law of God for Israel, Deuteronomy 5.17. Don't murder. So we say, okay, well, they were under the law. Now we're under grace. It's okay to murder somebody as long as they really need it. No. It's not okay. I hope online you're, you're tracking with this. I said no, okay? Uh, it's not. So First uh, Peter 4.15, Paul said, or Peter said, let none of you suffer as a murderer. And in Matthew 5, uh, look at how Jesus expands upon this in Matthew 5. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whosoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Jesus said, not only is murder wrong, but hatred is murder. Jesus raised the bar. So if you harbor hatred in your heart for somebody, Jesus is saying, it's like you murdered them on the inside of you, even though you didn't do it on the outside. So yeah, murder is wrong. Is it repeated? Or is it in another passage of scripture that helps you understand the subject? Murder is wrong. It's always wrong. From the days of Cain to the end of time, murder is wrong. How do we know that? Because it's repeated and because there's other passages of scripture that also teach this. So in each dispensation, it shows up that this is wrong. All right, here's the third question. Oh no, another subject with the second question, I forgot. Um, Matthew 6, 5. And I know I asked you to turn to Leviticus and I said we'd get there and we will. Leviticus chapter 11, we'll be there soon-ish. All right, uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, talk about going to a private room to pray. All right, now let's bring these up on the screen. Jesus is saying uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. Are you, are you looking at this, listening to this? They love to pray standing in the synagogues. So we had prayer this morning. Jeff, were you standing when you prayed? That's just what the hypocrites did. Okay. <laughs> it was fine. It was fine. I'll, I'll be standing and praying a little later. But, but listen, it was, it, it's not saying they love to draw the attention of people. And so it's kind of like this, you know, if, if you're in the synagogue and you're going to pray, you stand very elaborately, you kind of shake your robes out and then you get this right stance and you lifted your eyes and your hands toward God and then you prayed really loudly so everyone could hear you. But that wasn't enough. Look what else they did. They, they did it on the corners of the streets. Now, Today, occasionally you'll see people preaching on a street corner, especially in large cities. When we were in New York, you'd see some preach, and they're screaming and hollering and ranting and raving and sound less like God and more like Satan, angry and belligerent and violent. And, and, uh, but but they, they'd pray on the street corners, you know, and they'd catch somebody doing something wrong. And, oh, Lord, I thank you that I am not like Richard. 
Oh, I can't believe what he just did. Father, thank you. know, they would literally do that. And by the way, I have never seen Richard do anything bad. That's why I picked on him. I thought about calling out, no, never mind. But um, <laughs> listen, they, they would draw attention to themselves. This prayer was all about me and exalting me and looking good. And, and then Jesus said, Surely I say to you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and when you shut the door, pray to your father who is in that secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. About 25 years ago, a guy fussed at me. He visited the church we were in and, and the, we had somebody pray aloud in church, several prayers. And uh, back then we were still doing offering trays and so we prayed before the offering too and, and prayed at the end of the service. And, and he said, Jesus said, you're only supposed to pray in private. Well, is that the only verse on prayer in the Bible? You have to ask again, is it repeated? Is there another verse that also, another passage of scripture that helps you understand this subject? Let me tell you, there's lots of verses about prayer in the Bible. Jesus himself prayed in public at the... Um, at the grave site for, a, for a Lazarus, <laughs> started to say John the Baptist, but at the grave site for Lazarus, Jesus prayed aloud in front of everybody. He prayed in John 17, uh, that first one was in John 11, in John 17, he prayed in front of his disciples the, the Lord's Prayer. It's not the model prayer, but the prayer of Jesus' heart in John 17, we looked at that a few weeks ago. And, and Jesus prayed from his heart to the Father's heart. He wasn't trying to get the attention of man. He wasn't trying to impress people. He didn't throw smatterings of theological phrases in there so people could say, wow, he knows his stuff. He just shared from his heart to the Father's heart. And that's how we're supposed to pray. And then in Acts, it reports multiple times when the believers were praying together publicly. In fact, Paul said in uh, his letter to Timothy, men ought everywhere to pray. Uh, pray. I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere. And so we look at all the verses on prayer, we see that, yes, we need private prayer time. If you don't have private prayer time, just you and God, it's something you need to build into your life. He wants to hear from you, and he wants you to listen to him. Listen to his word, and listen to his spirit. So, have that private prayer time. But we also have public prayer time, like I gathered with some pastor friends and we shared prayer concerns and we prayed together. Jesus was teaching them to avoid praying like the Pharisees and to make sure their prayers were focused in their heart to God. All right, there's a third question. Is it unique to Israel? There are some things in the Bible that are unique to Israel. And now we're in Leviticus chapter 11. And uh, you guys turned there earlier, and I'm glad. Listen to what he says. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd, and of the flock. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without he shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. 
So if he sinned, now he's off giving his offering. Then in verse 5, he shall kill the bull before the Lord and the priest. Aaron's sons shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and lay the wood in order on the altar. Then the priests, Aaron's sons, shall lay... You know what I'm doing? I'm reading the wrong passage. Hey, you guys catch on to that? Yeah, I was getting all the way done. and I was going to read on through chapter 11, but... Uh, um, Anyway, the, the sacrifices, chapter 1, the sacrificers are supposed to be a free will offering. And that's why we have an offering box. We make it available online. We don't cajole you. We don't uh, ask to see your W-2 so we can send you an IOU. I, actually, there was a church in Tucson that built a big new expensive building, huge new expensive building. And then they sent a letter to all the members of the church and said, you now owe $10,000 to help pay off this building, and we expect you to have it here within six months. That will never happen here, and it should have never happened there. All right, are you in chapter 11? I am. Aren't you glad? Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the children of Israel. Now what we're talking about here is specific dietary laws for Israel. Okay? These are the, are the animals which you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Among the animals, whoever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves and chewing the cud, that you, that you may eat. Nevertheless, these you shall not eat among those that chew the cud or those that have cloven hooves. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, it is unclean to you. The rock badger or rock hyrax, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, it is unclean to you. The hare, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. Any of you ever eat rabbit? When I was in the Marinka, they fed it to us all the time because there were lots of rabbits growing out there. And uh, we had to shoot them and take them back and eat them. So uh, then he says, uh, uh, it's unclean to you. And the swine, though it divides the hoofs, having cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cut, it is unclean to you. Anybody ever have a piece of ham or pork or bacon or, you know, I mean, I was at somebody's house yesterday. They were serving bacon and pulled pork. Yep, okay. Look at verse 8. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. They are unclean to you. You know, he then goes on to describe other things they could eat or not eat. So what sea creatures, like they couldn't eat uh, octopus or squid or stuff. They could only eat uh, fish with scales on it. Uh, birds, they could eat certain birds and not eat other birds. And insects, they could eat, you know, yum, right? Uh, Got to get the good tasty insects as part of your diet. It might be in that ground beef, even though you don't know it. But All right, years ago, I received a call from a mom. Her son got saved through our ministry here. I actually led him to the Lord. And, and then I bought him a Bible, and he's reading this Bible, and he reads through this, and he says, I can't eat pork anymore. So he tells his mom, I can't eat pork. So she calls me on the phone and says, are you teaching my son that it's evil to eat pork? And I said, no, that's what the Bible says. But that was unique to Israel. 
It was not a command for us today. How do we know that? Well, look at these two verses. Genesis 9, verse 3 says, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. If you ever hear somebody tell you that you're supposed to be a vegetarian, it's, a, it's fine if you are a vegetarian. I prefer my vegetables processed through the pig, through the cow. But, you know, <laughs> actually, I love vegetables too, just only vegetables. But, but in Genesis 1 and 2, the diet at the beginning was vegetarian. For all creatures, including the T. rex dinosaur, it was a plant eater. And then after the flood, God said, now you can eat anything. And so Genesis 9, this is before the law, every moving thing you can eat. And then for us in the church age, in this dispensation, for every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, 1 Timothy 4.4. 4. So for Israel, before Israel, after the flood, they could eat anything. And then after the age of Israel, the, age, the time of the law, now we can eat anything as long as we receive it with thanksgiving. So the rules against eating pork or camels or calamari, those were exclusively for Israel in the days of Moses. They weren't for us today. How do we know that? Because there's other verses in the Bible that teach us that. If there was nothing else said in the Bible, then we would be following that rule from Leviticus. So, but is it unique to Israel? Here's another one, the Sabbath. Is it unique to Israel? I've heard a lot of evangelical preachers preaching on, you know, we follow the Ten Commandments, but we ignore this one. Well, we don't ignore the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was for Israel. On, um, I, I meant to tell you at the beginning, I actually have a note sheet. I know some of you love to take notes, and I have a note sheet. I didn't give it out ahead of time because it's a lot of reading, and I could see you just sitting there reading through and not paying attention. Um, I want you to listen to the Holy Spirit, not just copy down notes. Right? So uh, on this side, it says prescriptive or descriptive. It has the main points of the message. And then on the back side of that, it has... Do we need to follow each of the Ten Commandments today? And on this side, it shows how all of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament except for one, the Sabbath. It's never taught for the church. Even in Hebrews, where they're linking the Old Testament faith to the New Testament faith, it does not say you need to keep the Sabbath in the New Testament. It does not teach that. So the Sabbath was for Israel. We need rest, but in the church age or this dispensation of grace, you could get your rest on Tuesday. You could work on Saturday. How many of you have had to work on Saturday? Yeah. Actually, Megan and I both had to work yesterday. And uh, some Saturdays I'm able to take the day off, but not everyone. And so is it unique? Is it something we need to do today? No. By Acts 20, the early church was meeting on the first day of the week, and Paul gave instructions to the churches in Corinth to bring their offering on the first day of the week as they would gather together. That was their day of worship. It was no longer the Sabbath, the Saturday. It was Sunday. They celebrated the risen Savior. And so they started worshiping God on Sunday to celebrate that. And so Sunday is our day of worship, but Sunday is not our Sabbath. Have you ever watched the, the 
Oh, brother, Chariots of Fire, the movie Chariots of Fire about the Olympic runner, and he teaches that Sunday is the Sabbath. Sabbath means seventh. It's the seventh day of the week. Sunday is not the Sabbath. Now, if you want to make Sunday an entire day of rest, that's great, but don't enforce that on other people. That's not God's plan for this age. We did make our kids have a quiet time for a couple hours every Sunday afternoon, but that was more for our benefit than theirs, <laughs> so we could be refreshed and ready for Sunday night. So, um, It was unique to Israel. The dietary rules, the Sabbath. Was murder unique to Israel? No. It was commanded before and after the law in Israel. All right, number four. If it is not repeated, is it unique to a specific individual or a group to whom it was written? Now, these scriptures I would like you to turn to. We'll start out in Matthew chapter 19. Is it unique? There are some passages of scripture that are unique. The thing we're going to read in Matthew 19 is instruction that Jesus gave to a man who said, what can I do to inherit eternal life? How do I get to heaven? And Jesus tells him something that kind of blows your mind if you really understand what the Bible teaches about grace. It seems inconsistent, but we'll look at why Jesus said that, okay? Now, don't turn ahead to Matthew 26. Stay with me in Matthew 19 for just a minute. Matthew 19, verse 16. Now, behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit or that may have eternal life. So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he says, kind of the same thing you would say, which ones? Can I pick and choose? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, you shall... Love the Lord, uh, sorry, love your neighbor as yourself. He left off a couple about God and avoiding idols and, and worshiping only God. Uh, so this young man says to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, I want you to, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. All right, Jesus tells the guy, sell everything you've got and give it away to the poor. You know, there are churches that teach this is what you're supposed to do, because that's what Jesus told this guy. But see, this was unique. One time to one person, Jesus said this, but he didn't set this up as a pattern for everyone to follow. He actually taught Almost the opposite. Look in chapter 26, Matthew 26. All right, Matthew 26 and verse 8. Um, a lady has just anointed Jesus with an alabaster flask of very costly oil. In verse 8, when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for so much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to him, Why do you trouble the woman? 
for she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you will not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. You notice the next verse, Jesus then left. Jesus was the treasurer of the group. He didn't want it to be sold so the money could be given to the poor. He wanted it to be sold so some of the money could be given to the poor and he could keep the rest. And when, when he realized that wasn't going to happen, he went and he betrayed Jesus. So this was unique to that one man. That situation where Jesus taught that was descriptive, not prescriptive. Look how Jesus tells other people they come to God. In John chapter 1 and verse 12, But as many as received him, to them gave you the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. doesn't say anything about selling all that stuff. John 3, 3, Jesus answered Nicodemus and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And in John chapter 4 and verse 10, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well and he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus didn't say one of the ways you earn your salvation is to sell all your stuff and give it to the poor. He didn't even say that's what you have to do to please God. In fact, there's another teaching in scripture um, in the early church. Uh, they were trying to do that. In Acts 2, they tried to have everything sharing in common. In Acts 4, it talks about it again. And then in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they sell a piece of property, and then they don't give it all to the church. But they said they gave it all to the church. Let's just use numbers so we can understand it. Let's say they sold this piece of property for $100,000, and then they gave the church $50,000 or $60,000 and said, we sold the land and here's the money for it. And they kept some back. Listen to what Peter said to him. He said, uh, while you own that property, it was yours to do with. They had a right to own the property, a right to own household goods and even houses, but they should be generous toward God. So Peter didn't critique them because they kept some of the money. The problem was they lied to the Holy Spirit and said they gave it all, and they didn't. And that was the problem. It's not wrong for you to keep some of your money. In fact, if you give it all away, how are you going to provide for your family? Now, let me tell you this, okay? If the Holy Spirit very clearly leads you to be very generous, and that's even going to be a burden for your family, obey the Holy Spirit. Be generous, but make sure it's the Holy Spirit. How do you do that? You talk to some trusted friends. You pray about it. Talk it over. If you're married, talk to your spouse. Don't just say, oh, this is what I think I should do. Make sure, because God said not only do you have to be generous toward him, you also have to provide for your own family. And Peter wrote to Timothy, if you're not taking care of your family, you're worse than an infidel or an unbeliever. You have to provide for your family. So it's not wrong to have a nice car. It's not wrong to have a nice house. It's wrong to trust in your nice car or your nice house. It's wrong to be rich on your own and not be generous toward others. So, you know, I've always said, I wish I had enough money to buy a, a Maserati. 
I wouldn't want a Maserati, but I wish I had that much money and then I could do special things with it. You know, I, I don't want a big expensive car. I'd be afraid to get in an accident. I just wouldn't want that. I love looking at classic cars. I would never want to own one. Well, well I mean, except for a classic Harley, but you know, that's different. That's not a car. But, but what Jesus said to this guy was descriptive. Now, why would Jesus say that to that guy? Well, this, that passage of scripture actually answers it. He had a lot of money. And Jesus intentionally left off the commands about putting God first, about not having any other idols. This guy had the idol of his money and materialism, which is a major idol in America. And, and so Jesus dealt with his heart before God by addressing the money issue, because that was his problem. And he turned away sorrowfully. He walked away from salvation for a few bucks. And people are still doing that today. So is it unique to that individual or that group of people? All right, here's another one. Uh, here's unique instruction to the church in Corinth, churches in Corinth. There wasn't a single church. There were multiple churches. And so in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells them that when the women come to church, they have to have their heads covered and that for a woman to have shorter hair is an abomination. And, and then in chapter 14, I have these verses up here, chapter 14, verses 34 and 5, let your women keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home for it is a shame for women to speak in church. How many of you heard Clorinda up here talking in church? Why would she do that when the Bible says this? Well, I believe this is not prescriptive, but it's descriptive. Now, you have to follow with me here, okay? Paul gave specific instructions for all the churches in his letters to Timothy and Titus. Timothy and Titus are called the pastoral epistles. He's writing to pastors and leaders, and these guys, Timothy and Titus, were in, uh, helping uh, oversee groups of churches, and they were ministering, and they were caring, and so he gave them specific instructions. And in his letter to Timothy, he said, a woman should not have authority over men in the church. So, in our church, we try and follow that scripture by uh, if it's adult men, we don't have women teaching them. We have women teaching the younger kids, high school class on down. We have women teaching women. Uh, we have women sharing testimonies and things, but we don't have a woman stand up here, say, open your Bible and I'm going to preach to you. Why do we do that? Because men are better than women? No. Because women are better communicators? Absolutely not. Most of the time, women are better communicators. But we do it because we're trying to obey God's word. And in the pastoral epistles that Paul gave instruction for all the churches, he told them that. But he didn't talk about what he told the church in Corinth. He never mentioned that to any other church. The book of Romans is a doctrinal theological book. 
Paul had never been to Rome at that time. He was later as a prisoner, but at that time he had never been to Rome. And so he wrote this book out to challenge him and he lays out doctrine. And so he does that for uh, a bunch of chapters and then he switches and, and he starts doing the practical teaching for the church. He never mentions women being silent and he never mentions women having head coverings or making sure they don't have their hair cut short. This was a problem that was specific to the churches in Corinth because in Corinth they had a big temple for Aphrodite. And in the worship of Aphrodite, they had what they called priestesses, what we would call prostitutes, that served in the temple and to be purified, they came and had a relation with the priestess. And so those women had their hair cut really short and uncovered. And so Paul's saying, listen, you ladies in Corinth, you need to look way differently than those ladies look. And not only that, but the women were the domineering ones because Aphrodite is a worship of a woman and the woman's body and the sexuality of a woman. So the, the women were dominating over the men in that temple, in that community. And so Paul said, hey, you ladies there, when you're in the church, you keep silent. He was teaching them what to do in that community to make sure they not only look differently than the ones who were following Aphrodite, but they acted differently than the ones who were following Aphrodite. It was unique instruction to the church. Paul never taught it anywhere else. In fact, in that treatise to Rome where he really lays out the doctrine of the faith, he ends with chapter 16 talking about a lady, um, Chloe, was that right? Phoebe, sorry, Phoebe. And he says to Phoebe, or about Phoebe, he says, you guys help her in her ministry. He doesn't say, but make sure she stays silent in the church. So before church started, there were people talking and moving around and interacting with one another. During church, we had Clorinda share something and Megan shared something and, and, uh, and we're not violating scripture because from the best of our ability to understand what Paul told the church in Corinth was unique for that group of churches. It was not for all churches everywhere. Now, further, uh, Mary and Martha, remember in Luke 10, maybe you don't remember it, but in Luke 10, Mary and Martha, and Jesus comes over to the house, and, and uh, so Lazarus sits with Jesus, and Mary sits with Jesus, and Martha's in the kitchen trying to get everything done, and Martha gets exasperated because she wants Mary to help, and Martha interrupts the teaching Jesus was doing to the men in the room, interrupts his teaching to say, Lord, tell her to get back out here and help me in the kitchen. Jesus did not rebuke Martha for speaking in front of the men. He rebuked Martha for not having spiritual insight. He rebuked Martha because Martha was so focused on the meal, she was missing the spiritual blessing of listening to and learning from Jesus the Christ. So uh, Paul's instruction was unique. It was not repeated. It seems to be unique to the specific individual or group to whom it was spoken or written. Okay? And now, one last thing. Number five, can you learn something even if it's not prescriptive? Can you learn something from it? Yes. 
As I mentioned earlier, we were looking at um, Leviticus 1 when I was reading from that, and you were wondering where I was. Uh, in Leviticus 1, he's talked about the offering. We don't have to bring a blood sacrifice here. If you sinned this week, you don't have to bring a little turtle dove and I wring its neck and sprinkle the blood on the altar. Uh, we don't have to sacrifice lambs. And you know, the worship part in Israel must have smelled a little bit like a meatpacking plant. And I'm glad we don't have that. I'm glad. Why don't we have that? Because Jesus paid the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice. The Lamb of God paid the penalty for our sins. And now our sins can be removed. So, but what we can learn from Leviticus 1, I meant offerings are supposed to be free will. You give your heart to God. Nobody compels you to give. Nobody demands you to give. You give out of a heart for God to bless his work and to further his ministry. And so you can learn from that. But here's another one Jeff sent me. Well, can you learn anything? Romans 15, here's a verse that says, you can learn anything from any part of Scripture. Whatever things were written before were written for our learning, and we through patience and comfort of Scriptures might have hope. So let's go back just in your head. We're not going to turn back to that Proverbs 22 when it talked about train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. Okay, what can you learn? You can learn that the best investment you can make as a parent is teach your kids to follow God. The best investment you can make as a grandparent is encourage your grandkids to follow God, to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now, is that a promise that it'll all work out hunky-dory? No, it might work out dory-hunky. We, we don't know how it'll work out. God knows, but what we know is it's worth the effort to make the effort and try. So you can learn from it, even though it's not a specific promise for you. All right, so Jeff sent me this one from Matthew 5.41, and the verse will be up here. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Now, if you read through the Old Testament law, you don't find that. It's not in uh, the Pentateuch at all. If you read through anywhere in the Old Testament, you don't find this rule. Where do you find this rule? In Matthew 5.41. Why did it show up there? Well, because the Jews were under Roman occupation. And a Roman soldier could come along and compel you to carry his pack for a mile. That was the law. That was the rule. So you know what the Jewish people traditionally did? They knew how many steps it was for a mile, and they would count it out, you know. All right, three more steps. Boom, I did my mile. And they'd walk away. And Jesus said, listen, when you are compelled, ordered, instructed to carry it a mile, carry it too. Why? So you can show that you're different. And you're answering a higher calling to God, not just to the law. So uh, Jesus was establishing a new rule for the Jews that lived under Roman occupation. It was prescriptive for them, but it's descriptive for us. Unless you're in the military, no one can compel you to go walk a mile. If you're in the military, all of you who were in the military, how many of you got ordered to walk and hike and march? and Yeah. All of us who were in the military had to do that. But nobody can do it anymore. So what do we learn from this? 
Here's what we learn. You can learn to always do more than necessary as you obey those in authority over you and as you help and minister to others. Always do more than necessary. We just finished an Awana year. Kids finished their Awana books. Uh, ben and Hunter got the highest award in Awana. They got their citation award. And uh, for, for the Penix now, there's four in their family who've got the citation. Tim and Clarinda and Savannah and Hunter. And Dawson's working on it, right? Okay, good, because your mom will have a problem if you don't. <laughs> but you know what? Um, when, when we came down to the end of the year, I, I help in the middle school club, the Trek Club, and Joel and Lori and, and Jim and I help in there, and Dan Weber, um, Dan's still not able to be here because he hurt his arm and, and that. But, but we, we work in there, and you know what we found toward the end of the year? Kids were not saying, hey, is there any extra stuff I can do? It's like, what's the minimum I have to get done to finish my book? You know what? That was okay in that setting. But if that's your practice for life, that's not a good practice. You should try and do a little extra just because you're a Christian and want to show grace on planet Earth. So is it descriptive or prescriptive? And how can you tell? How do you know? Well, you ask these questions because most of the false teaching that occurs today is because people try and take something that was prescriptive to a different group of people in a different dispensation or a different location and it's not applicable across the board to everybody and they try and make that applicable to everybody. And uh, sometimes it's easy to tell if a text should be obeyed as a law or or whether it's just uh, something you can learn from and build a principle in your life based on it. But sometimes it takes broad reading through the scriptures, and sometimes it requires hours of study and to understand the culture and the setting for the original text. In fact, if, if you don't do any study in Corinth on the culture in Corinth, you don't understand why on earth Paul would make that rule in Corinth. And then you think, well, maybe it should be applied everywhere. But when you study the scripture, you see that it wasn't applied everywhere, only there. So here's the instruction Paul gave to Timothy. Be diligent, study, make every effort, do your best to present yourself approved to God, rightly dividing or rightly handling, interpreting, understanding the word of truth. Now you have a helper, the Holy Spirit of God. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit lives inside you. He can help you understand the scripture. But you know, sometimes you just have to dig in and study. Sometimes it takes work. And here's the key, all right? Here's the key, two things. Obey what you know and then learn as you go. Obey what you know and then learn as you go. I've been preaching God's word for decades. I've been studying it for longer than that. My wife's been reading and studying the Bible for more than 50 years, and we're still learning. There's a lot in there. And so don't feel like you got to have everything down now. 
And if you come to a passage and you say, well, I don't like that passage, so I'm going to pretend it's descriptive. Okay, that's not good. You know, one of the early church fathers said, if you don't understand the passage, just make it allegorical and make up your own meaning. You can't do that. But you also are never expected to have all the answers. Even the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the church in Corinth, said in chapter 7, he said, I'm pretty sure the Holy Spirit's revealed this to me, but I'm not quite sure. So just do your best for where you are right now. Build on what you're learning and make progress. And if you were wrong, admit it and press on. Everybody on the planet except Jesus has been wrong at least once. When Jesus was on the planet, he never was. He never sinned. Everybody else has misapplied something from Scripture, misunderstood something. Don't feel like, oh, my life is ruined. I've had it wrong all these years. No, just try and make it right as you learn and as you go. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Scripture we thank you for your instruction to us. We thank you that um, I'm really thankful that the dietary restrictions on Israel don't apply to us today. I'm grateful for that. I, I'm thankful for the freedom that we have in Christ. And, and I'm also aware of the obligation that we have in Christ to follow you. I pray that you would be honored and glorified by the decisions that we make on the inside, by the activities that we pursue on the outside. And help us to understand your word and to know and love you. We could have the Bible memorized, every word, and if our heart is not right before you, we're not doing the right thing. So may we keep our heart tender toward you. May we love you and serve you with our whole heart. May you teach us from your word so that we can love and follow and serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, don't leave. Stick around. Talk to somebody. Uh, see, see how we can show you from the Word of God how you can be saved. And if there's some passage of Scripture that you're struggling with, you read something and you want to know, just write it down or text it to me, email it to me. If you're online and you can't pick up one of these here, you can email Megan at victory at victory, Arizona. Please pick one up. Uh, and I mean, if you're a couple, you can take just one and share it. But, uh, but it'll be beneficial to you. And if we run out, we can always uh, print more. Uh, it just, just helps you understand what we were talking about today. Because part of what we talked about is hard for people to wrap their head around. Because it feels like it's God's Word. Well, yes, it's God's Word. But God didn't design every part of His Word to be specifically instructive in every part of your life. He built it differently. And we have to appreciate the way God put his word together because it was his idea in the first place. Thank you for listening to the Victory Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to know more about Victory, please visit our website at victoryarizona.org. You can also connect with us on our Facebook page or by emailing victory at victoryarizona.org. We'd love to help you accept and follow Jesus Christ.